0: It's a story about a young monk uh, practicing in Thailand. And he came across Ajahn Chah, who talked about one of the teachings of the Buddha about mindfulness and awakening. And Ajahn Chah quoted the discourse where the Buddha says that those who practice diligently would surely be enlightened in seven days. And if not in seven days, then in seven months or even seven years. And a young American monk, hearing this teaching, asked if it was still true. And Ajahn Chah promised that if the young monk was continuously mindful without break, for only seven days he would be enlightened. Excitedly, the young monk started his seven days, only to be lost in forgetfulness ten minutes later. Coming back to himself, he again started his seven days, only to become lost once more in mindless thought, perhaps about what he would do after his enlightenment. And again and again he began his seven days, and again and again he lost his continuity of mindfulness. A week later he was not enlightened, but had become very much aware of his habitual thoughts and wandering of mind, a most instructive way to begin this practice on the path to real awakening. Sound familiar? So, early on in the retreat, I spoke some about the tension of waking up and about how often we are really appreciating, actually, the subtlety of the hindrance factors and how they can pervade so much of consciousness. And, of course, the way that the Buddha answered the hindrance factors of softened and torpor, of agitation, of restlessness and worry, of aversion and doubt, was to put alongside them the factors or the qualities of awakening. And the quality of awakening I would really just like to reflect on this morning is the third of these qualities, which in Pali is virya. Often translated as energy, um, but in a very, in a, this word actually, virya, has many, many dimensions. <laughs> and I think it's most accurately translated as a quality of heroism or courage. Virya also includes the domains of dedication, of enthusiasm, of wise effort, of perseverance, of passion. These are all part of this awakening factor of virya. For energy to be present, there equally needs to be confidence or wise faith. For energy to be directed in a fruitful way, it initially needs a basis of mindfulness. Mindfulness allowing us, it is mindfulness that allows us to direct the energy that we have available to us in ways that decrease our capacity for torment and struggle and increase our capacity for wakefulness and freedom. I believe that we would all probably recognize and agree that to bring anything in this life to fruition It requires energy, requires energy to raise a child, to climb a mountain, but most importantly it requires energy to realize our most deeply held aspirations for compassion and for love and for liberation. It takes a good deal of energy to meet some of the adversities and the difficulties that we all encounter in this life. It takes vast amounts of energy, I think, to turn towards our world and at times our life in which so much can seem to be broken. You've probably noticed being here, it actually takes quite a lot of energy, doesn't it, just to get up in the morning and get through your day. Hmm? just to be able to show up without being overwhelmed by the almost pervasive, perpetual nature of our thoughts, our emotions, our habits of distractedness, our mental states. It requires a lot of dedication, I think, and effort and energy to walk this path which can hold many moments of joy. But which can also hold moments of doubt, doubt about we're doing what we're doing, doubt about our capacity to undertake almost the size of this path. I think when you when we all sit with ourselves day by day and really listen inwardly, it, it's actually easy to become disheartened at times. So many habit patterns can seem so embedded, so stuck. It can seem like there's a long way to go. When we really look at (coughs) virya energy, we see that it's such a necessary ingredient in all change and in all transformation. When you look at the people of the past and the present that you most admire, the people who've touched us deeply, um, the heroines and the heroes in our lives, we see actually a very shared commitment to virya, to energy, to passion, to dedication. But the heroines and the heroes that inspire us, I think, it's important not to be too grandiose about this. It's not just about the Dalai Lamas or the Martin Luther Kings or the Gandhis. It's about the very ordinary people on a daily basis, you know, who look after their aging parents, who raise a disabled child, the people even in this path that we all encounter, you know, who have this quality of, of a steady perseverance. I think this path, this practice that we undertake, is really concerned primarily with awakening, with liberation. And virya is one of the most pivotal qualities. The Buddha put it, If I did not trust that this path and its fruition of awakening was not possible for you, I would not ask it of you. But because I know and trust this is possible for you, I ask it of you. So I want to explore some of the qualities of virya and how it interacts with some of the other experiences that we have in meditation practice. It's probably clear that virya is primarily an antidote to sloth and torpor, that familiar friend. That mind state that leaves us to sink, to flounder, to be forgetful, and to lose our way. It is a veiling factor, and we're not talking about fatigue here. We're talking about the spectrum of sloth and torpor, which manifests in disconnection, in boredom, in, in uh, a kind of distance, a remoteness of experience. Um, the kind of disconnection where we lose interest, that part of sloth and torpor, we just sort of forget what we're doing, actually sort of lose interest. And within that, we actually see that we lose connection. The moment that we lose interest, we are no longer connected with where we are. The moment that we lose interest and experience boredom, disconnection, discontent, we also see these are the moments we lose confidence in ourselves and in the path the times when we want to be anywhere but where we are. So to understand virya, I think it is so important to understand sloth and torpor. Because virya doesn't arise when sloth and torpor magically disappears. It's something that is cultivated in the midst of it. It's very important to be mindful of where we engage in postponement practice. Thinking that there is surely going to be a better moment to be awake in, you know, after lunch or in a tomorrow. Tomorrow looks like a much better moment to be diligent in, to, you know, to persevere in. This very insidious voices of sloth and torpor is actually this kind of convincing, you know, that this moment's not quite good enough to be awake in. I need some better conditions, you know, uh, a, different, a different mind state think it is one of the most kind of pernicious voices of sloth and torpor. Um, we could say, I think, that Viria is in an ongoing dialogue with sloth and torpor, just as it's in an ongoing dialogue with confidence and investigation. I think that dialogue really asks for our participation. So look at this dialogue with confidence, with faith, wise faith, with trust. Clearly, what we trust in, we invest energy in. We give attention to, we value. If we doubt something, we don't invest energy and attention in. It's a fairly, I think, simple and obvious equation in our life. Now, this path is a path, actually, that offers many possibilities, and not just for a select few. This path is an invitation to discover the profound depths of calmness, of mindfulness, of boundless compassion and kindness and equanimity, and liberating insight. These are the possibilities we are all invited to cultivate and that can be realized. So I think part of the beginning of Virya is to really look at what kind of confidence each one of us holds in our capacity. Both to walk the path, and to realize its possible possibilities. What kind of dialogue do we have with the possibility of bringing struggle and torment to an end, and uprooting their causes? What kind of dialogue do we have with the possibility of realizing the very same understandings and insights that the Buddha realized? Personally, I think this is a very important dialogue to engage in. Because it is said that without confidence, there is no virya. Without confidence, there is no perseverance. It's like a person in a boat that has everything except the oars. So the boat doesn't go anywhere. Without confidence, I think, in ourselves and our own possibilities, we have what I would refer to as periods of episodic viria. Things go well. You know, we have a so called good sitting, good walking. You know, confidence levels are up, energy levels are up. We can hardly wait to get back in the hall. We have a difficult sitting. A return of a mind storm, we fall asleep on our cushion and we feel that confidence collapse as we convince ourselves that we're absolutely the worst meditator in the world and consider a a new life as a a greengrocer in something other. We can't do this. Now, the kind of confidence we're speaking about here is clearly different than an ideological belief system. It's a confidence rooted in investigation. Looking at our own capacity to step back with mindfulness and to take a very clear and a very honest look at our lives, at the nature of our mind, our heart, our body to take a step back and look at the universal laws that run through all of our lives, the laws of facing our mortality and the mortality of all things, to look at the reality of seeing that there is nothing that we can truly call our own or define as as mine, not our bodies, not our possessions, not our identities. When we step back, we begin to see the kind of emotional, psychological processes through which we construct our personal world of the moment. And we begin to see in our own experience what causes struggle and torment and what brings it to an end. We don't have to go somewhere else for this understanding. It's right here i just heard a friend of mine say recently like he didn't have to go somewhere else to encounter greed, hatred and delusion. He just had to close his eyes. It's really acknowledging what is right here but also seeing that we have everything right here that begins to unlock some of the prisons that we find ourselves in. And one of the key factors in that unlocking is, of course, virya. I would call it a passionate interest. We don't offer quick-fix strategies. We learn to give up magical thinking that if we just change the conditions of our life, then we will be happy. What we really see is that when there is interest, There is a natural attention, and that energy follows attention. These three are so closely linked together. Interest, attention, and energy. You can't take any one of those pieces out of that formula. This is actually not something that's news to us in our life. If you remember the first time you ever fell in love, probably nobody had to ask you to pay attention. And there was probably a substantial amount of energy there. You see it in when we read a kind of enthralling book or something. We don't need a reminder to wake up. But we see that we also bring this same formula into some of the difficult places in our life. We can be quite interested actually in our obsessions, and our fantasies, and our constructions. And then we see that there is interest, there is attention, and there is energy, but it's not always wise attention. And this is a really important piece for us, I think, to discern in our own practice. What is wise attention and what is unwise attention? What is it wise to attend to, and what is it not wise to attend to? I mean, we see how easily our attention is drawn into the dramatic, the exciting, the intense. And we see that in our obsessions, in our preoccupations, in our fantasies. So part of virya is this discerning quality about what is helpful to attend to and what is unhelpful. Discerning what increases suffering and what decreases suffering. And I think part of developing wise attention in this discernment quality is letting go of our habits of distractedness. Because this is a place where we're often easily infatuated. There's a saying in the Tibetan tradition that preoccupations do not end until the moment we die. But they end when we put them down. This is their nature. There's a sense in the practice of how we're allowing things to fall away. And I, you know, talking with some of you, I really get this sense of how, as the practice deepens, there's a more natural focusing on what is important there There is a less of a preoccupation with some of our fantasies, our narratives, even just a kind of disenchantment with them, where they just release themselves. I think it's part of recognizing how much this is a present moment practice of knowing that whether we're moving or still acting or or motionless, whether we're speaking or silent, that something is moving through our consciousness. Something is being practiced, and I think part of this wise attention is really discerning and knowing for ourselves: what are we embodying? What are we practicing in this moment? Is it in the service of perpetuating confusion, or in the service? of deepening inner freedom. With mindfulness, we we bring our lives into the domain of wise intention and out of the domain of impulse and habit. It is the work of mindfulness. It's a work of virya that then translates into wise effort. I think we could probably all have philosophical conversations about suffering and about impermanence and about non-self. But to live in the light of those understandings, I think really does take effort. We could all have aspirations to be the kindest, most compassionate person in the world, but it is effort that rescues those aspirations from the realm of just being idealized thinking. The effort that is asked for I think in this practice is not about striving, it's not about forcing, but it's about consciously honoring moment to moment our deepest aspirations and sense of possibility. allowing wise effort then to guide and to shape our actions and our choices. One aspect of effort is about what we do with our attention, what we do with our energy. But another aspect of of wise effort, I think, is about what we don't do. It's about the effort of restraint, I think it's very easy to underestimate how much effort it actually takes to safeguard our hearts and our minds. It's not a defensive kind of effort. It's not a way of shutting out the world or trying to annihilate thinking or trying to close down into a more contracted space. But I think we all recognize, and the more time we spend with ourselves, the more we recognize how some of our habit patterns, our psychological and emotional habit patterns, are actually, (laughs) saying it in other words, so habitual. So habitual. Doesn't it take you by surprise sometimes? I mean, we just know. I mean, it's, it's, it's like we all know, you know, aversion's not that helpful. You know, we know obsession really doesn't serve us that well. You know, we know that distractedness basically leads us to run around in circles. I mean, we know a lot about craving. And isn't it just amazing that, you know, even in knowing this, we just find ourselves just falling in that pit again or diving into it? So much of this practice, or the kind of effort we're using, is about safeguarding the heart, safeguarding the mind. And there's a piece in this effort which is about wise avoidance. About where not to spend our time. You know, it's as if you were having a dinner party, you know, with friends and somebody knocks on the door, an uninvited guest. Of course it's very lovely and wonderful and kind to offer them a glass of water and see them on their way. Mostly we wouldn't invite them in for a five-course meal knowing that if we did that, they're very likely to turn up on our doorstep again. Think about this with some of our thought patterns, some of our more unhelpful emotional patterns. They do arise. They do arise. But can we treat them, you know, thoughts of envy, of blame, of judgment, of obsession, can we treat them like the uninvited guest? Offer them a glass of water and not a five-course meal. If you offer them the five-course meal, they will know this is a good place to visit and they will return. Learning to safeguard the mind. Energy is what brightens dullness. Energy, virya, is what cools the fires of craving and aversion. Aversion. Energy is what allows us to be steadfast in the midst of doubt. But personally, I think one of the greatest gifts of Virya is to liberate our hearts from being held within the grip of the world of conditions. We know how easy it is to go through life believing that the conditions we find ourselves in hold the intrinsic power to make us happy or unhappy, angry or glad. And the very essence of the Buddhist teaching, of course, was to challenge this belief system. Conditions can be difficult, conditions can be lovely, but our own hearts and minds generate happiness and unhappiness. I think part of the world of conditions that can so govern our acts and our speech and our thoughts is the condition of our state of mind. In the West, I think, and this is a particularly Western uh, set of conditions, we tend to believe or hold often a very powerful belief system that says how we feel about something is the most legitimate and determining factor in how we speak, act, and relate. If I feel good about something, I go for it. If I don't feel good about something, I avoid it. In this kind of belief system, anything else other than how I feel in the moment, or my mental state of the moment, actually, is determined to be inauthentic. Authentic. It's a very charged word, I think, in our culture, authenticity and in-authenticity. This is actually a belief system. First of all, it doesn't work. But more importantly, in the path of awakening, it's really something to question. Think about how many times in our life we engage in something Not because of how we feel, but because of what we value. Any of you who've raised a child know this. Three in the morning, you don't feel like getting up. And you get up anyway, because you value something more deeply. You might have a friend call you in the midst of a very full day. You might not feel like listening, but you do, because of valuing care and compassion. You might be rushing through your day and see someone, elderly person, struggling to cross the street. You might not feel like stopping to help, but you do so because of what you value. I see this quite clearly on retreats. You know, I could imagine if we ever said to you, you know, Only ever come in this room if you really, really feel like it, and if you don't feel like it, don't come. You know. Um, You know. Imagine if we said, you know, only go and walk. You know, if you really, really feel like it. You know. You know. If you don't feel like doing your yogi job, you know, never mind. You know. Just, just drop it. And yet, what I see on retreats, of course, is people continually—they show up. They show up. They do the practice. They come to sit. They come to walk. We don't take roll call. We don't go drag people out of their beds. But there is something here where you withdraw the, condi- the the agreement and the consent for of your mind state of the moment being the most determining quality in your actions. And actually, it is part of virya. This is actually a very big part of virya. Is actually that deeper commitment to what we most value and aspire to, rather than the passing mind state of the moment. In my understanding, this is one of the very much most significant aspects of Virya, is the mind states, they are mind states. They come, they go. What is actually enduring is that sense of aspiration and possibility. There's a saying from the Tibetan tradition. It says, (coughs) when you hear the stories of the lives of the great teachers, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, of the deeds they did and the trials they went through for the Dharma, don't be discouraged. Never think they were only capable of achieving all they did because they were Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and that you could never do the same. Instead, remember that it was simply by acting in this way that they became so accomplished. I think it is really, really useful to to look moment to moment at what it is that governs our acts and our choices and our thoughts and our speech, what it is that governs the kind of effort we bring or don't bring to really look at where we draw upon this kind of more deeper sense of aspiration. And at time, other times, the ways in which the prevailing mind state of the moment is given authority, often quite unconsciously. Often quite unconsciously. And there, there is something about just learning to practice through the mind states, to walk through the mind states, to know them as they actually are. It is the quieter quality of Viria, of stepping out of the world of conditions. It takes a lot of courage to be steadfast in our lives, in the midst of loss and failure and disappointment, and be able to remain upright. It takes a lot of courage to really cultivate an inner refuge, rather than seeking refuge in the world of conditions. This quality of virya is not about dramatic gestures. It's the numerous small moments, actually, where we walk the path of kindness, rather than the path of aversion where we walk the path of patience rather than the path of impatience. It's a quieter quality of theory, I think, where we commit to remembering and to mindfulness rather than to forgetfulness. But it's acknowledging that each time we're consciously making those choices and undertaking those choices we are actually deepening our capacity for wakefulness and of not being imprisoned by the world of conditions when we speak when, when the buddha speaks about awakening i think it's really helpful not always to think of this with a, a capital a you know the big breakthrough but actually that the very process of awakening the moment very process of liberating the moment from greed, hatred, and delusion, then I think this is where viria grows and it deepens. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.